to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Turn there with me in your Bibles. Now, Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing as we open the scriptures. May your Holy Spirit do the same in our hearts. Open the eyes of our understanding to see these truths and then grant us the grace to put them into practice so that we can be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in chapter 20, uh, David's in the pressure cooker, if you will. Um, He is being chased all over the place by a rabid, crazy king named Saul, who's driven by a murderous rage to get rid of any rival to his throne. And David's caught in a terrible situation, and it's not even his own doing, and it's not even him to blame. Now, he's in the pressure cooker, and I should mention that he's already been in the pressure cooker for two chapters and will remain in that same situation for 11 chapters to come until, I'm sorry to say, but the crazy king perishes. Once Saul dies, David will get back to life uh, in the normal Now, the Lord has been and is continuing to raise up David here in his pre-king years for a great work to be Israel's next king to replace King Saul, who's been fired. Now, uh, to prepare David, the Lord prepares him two ways, outwardly and inwardly. So right before we get into chapter 20, the context just is important Uh, the Lord is preparing David outwardly. So he has to get him from the obscurity of a sheep pen and not being very well known into the palace. And so outwardly, the Lord is moving David closer and closer to the throne. And he's done so by allowing him to slay Goliath and become well known for his courage and his strategy, uh, Militarily speaking, Uh, he's also been hired, as you will know, uh, to uh, soothe Saul's mental condition with a beautiful harp playing and so that he's in the palace. But even greater than all of that, now he's married to the king's daughter, which was a reward for killing Goliath. And so now he's King Saul's son-in-law living in the palace, working, employed as the chief musician and also leading uh, military campaigns. Uh, So uh, he is becoming quite the hero, well-known, well-loved, and so outwardly he's been prepared, bringing him to the palace. Now David is also being prepared inwardly, and I would say uh, that is the hardest part. The easy part is to get him to the palace. The hard part is to get him to be a God-honoring God-fearing man of God in his heart, capable of leading God's people. And so the Lord has brought adversity and trouble into his life. And it's a well-regarded biblical truth that the Lord often uses pressure and adversity or trouble to help make a person into a man or woman of God. That is why Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that we believers not only rejoice in the wonderful goodness of salvation, but we rejoice also in our sufferings because we know suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. 
Now, as I've often told you, it's not just suffering in and of itself that uh, brings godliness and character. I mean, we've all met very cantankerous, uh, crotchety, old, bitter people because they have mishandled the adversity in their lives. So it's not just, uh, uh, it's not just, it's not just suffering by itself. It's God honoring and handling that suffering as a believer scripturally that will make you into a person of God. You see, so David is behaving wisely in all his ways. And that point has been driven home by the Holy Spirit in the previous chapter five times. He's handling his pressure cooker experience, experience wisely. And that means things like he keeps his heart from poisonous hate and bitterness and revenge. He's being chased in, in such an unfair way, such a horrible situation, and, and, and yet he keeps his heart free from the bitterness. He's free from envy and jealousy and revenge. He doesn't try to split the kingdom by being divisive. He never tries to manipulate himself to the top. He never sees himself as a victim. He continues to respect the authority of the position Saul holds. He keeps trusting God. He keeps his relationship with the Lord sweet, and he remains humble. And just a wonderful thing. He suffers well. So David is growing in perseverance and patience and endurance. David is deepening in character. Romans 5, the promise. Because suffering, in David's case, rightly handled scripturally, will produce perseverance. And perseverance, rightly handled, will produce character, godliness, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and the hope. So here's the context. If you missed last week, that's what's been going on, preparation outwardly and inwardly for David to be on the throne in 10 years from now. And uh, not in 10 years physically from now, though it may seem like it's going that slowly, but we will get there sooner than 10 years, I promise you. And in case you missed last week, here's the context from chapter 19. Now, King Saul's son... The crown prince, Jonathan, is actually David's, we can call him his BFF, his best friend, all right? So Jonathan has momentarily managed to talk his crazy father, Saul, out of his jealous rage and his murderous intentions with David. And it was a beautiful scene last week. We saw it was short-lived, but we saw Jonathan, a true man of God, uh, just a peacemaker, bring David back into the palace and present him back to his father. And things were like they were at the beginning when there was peace. And, and that was all well and good until what? Until David started bowling strikes again, you know, and showing up his boss and uh, keeps going into battle and the Lord giving him tremendous victories. And then people would come back singing David's praises and suddenly... King Saul enraged all over again, his eyes rolling back, the, the foam at the corners of his mouth, and then the spears flying in David's direction. 
So David kissed his wife goodbye and fled the palace to the hills to what we would call a retreat center where Samuel the high priest was and he poured out his heart to him there. And then the Lord decided to have some fun last chapter. Uh, Crazy Saul is sending delegations of soldiers to arrest David at that retreat center. And you'll recall that all three of the uh, squads of soldiers uh, come back empty-handed because when they get on campus, they get filled with the Holy Spirit and they start praising God. So they come back empty-handed but filled with the Spirit, which is a good thing. And then Saul just says, listen, I'm exasperated. I'll get this job done myself. He goes to the retreat center to, uh, to really, in effect, kill David. And the Holy Spirit overtakes Saul and Saul strips himself of his royal royal robes and lays down on the ground all night long singing praises to God. Now David looks at this scene and says, I'm going to slip out the back door while I can. And so that's where we're going to pick up. I do want to say about the Lord has told Saul, it's over, step down. And, And Saul keeps exalting himself. And the scriptures say, and Jesus said it three times, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so if Saul won't step down and take off the royal robes, he, the Lord, will help him to do so. So there he is, laying in his undergarments, having said, really, by taking his robes off, I am no longer king. I'm going to praise God and step down. And God had to force his hand there. If we won't humble ourselves before the Lord, the Lord is always available 24-7 to help us in that regard. Amen? (laughs) I know. It was painful to say it myself. Now, so while Saul's distracted, as I said, singing God's praises, David decides to uh, once again put some distance between him And the king. So verses one through four. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. So Roman numeral number one, as I like to say for you note takers, a friend in need. Now, a friend in need is a friend indeed is not a biblical proverb, but all it means is when you're in trouble, there's nothing like a true blue friend. And David knows he has a true friend, uh, as odd as it may seem, in King Saul's son. (laughs) They're best friends. Now, why does David flee the retreat center? Can't he just trust the Lord? I mean, come on, man. You killed a giant and you're a war hero. What's, what's the matter with you? Why are you always running away? 
Well, it's wise to put a little distance uh, between the two. Now, if Saul's had a change of heart, it may be just like many times before. You know, it never seems to last. So David senses that this may just be one of those times, only a skin deep kind of change. Now, if David stays and he's wrong, uh, he's, he's in danger again. But if he goes, there's time to see if Saul's change of heart can withstand the test of time. Now, flirting with danger and ignoring common sense and putting ourselves in dangerous situations is not trusting the Lord. It's called presuming upon the Lord. So when David doesn't have a sure word from God, he doesn't just presume upon the Lord, oh, whatever. You know, common sense would say, hey, get out of harm's way. But you know what? The Lord will just take care of me. I don't have to use common sense. Uh, yeah, you do. He, he acts practically and gets himself out of harm's way. Now, David returns to the fortress to his trusted buddy here, who's been really effective in suppressing Saul's rage. And so he goes back to the king's son, his best friend. And I can imagine him out of breath, and he's glad to see Jonathan. And the opening verse, I imagine David saying, man, dude, your dad's at it again. I'm a walking dead man, and I'm not sure what I've done to deserve to die. And Jonathan's disbelief, just notice that in verse 2. It's just so heartfelt reply, and it's very moving to me. Let me paraphrase. He says, never in a million years, David, my father confides in me about big things and every little thing. If he checks in with me about the palace menu, don't you think he'd tell me that he's plotting to take your life? Now, why is Jonathan so seemingly naive? Why is he so surprised? Come on. He's seen what his dad is capable of doing and how enraged he's been. Uh, so why is uh, he so sure that David has nothing to fear? Well, Jonathan is a godly man. Uh, he's not only a loyal friend to David, he's a trusting son who wants to believe the best about his father. His heart isn't yet jaded. He's not a cynical man. He, this guy is, is like a rung right under David character-wise. He's got a soft and tender heart, and to the pure, all things are pure. And his dad, just last chapter, put his arm around David and said a sacred oath to the Lord, and he said, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. And Jonathan, who's a man of God, heard that oath. And for Jonathan, a man of God, oaths mean the world to him. So he's heard his dad say, unto the Lord, you're not going to die. Are you crazy? He made, a, he made an oath to the Lord. Well, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the crooked, all things are crooked. <laughs> and so this guy, his oath means nothing. It's just true love living in Jonathan's heart that's protecting. Listen, love always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Jonathan wants to believe 
that he and his father have a close relationship and that his father values him and would tell him something like this. Jonathan wants to believe the best about his father and that he's not a dishonorable man. But to me, the most heartbreaking thing about a self-absorbed person is that they don't care about anybody else and they don't realize that their being so self-centered is going to destroy other people. But that's the whole deal about being self-absorbed. That's why Hebrews says uh, that, or James chapter 3, excuse me, James chapter 3 says that where you find a self-centered person, you find disorder, chaos, and every evil thing. Just about being self-centered. Now, just see Jonathan just grieved and broken and it just, it just breaks me to see that. Verse 3, David takes an oath. He resorts to taking a vow himself because he knows that Jonathan really respects vows. So he says, really, I swear before the Lord, your dad knows you love me. Your dad wants to protect you from the ugly truth. And I'm one spear throw away from death. And so Jonathan begins to soften to the possibility. And there in verse 4, he says, what do you need from me? Because you've got it, no matter what it costs me because that's what a true friend is. So David proposed a simple test, verses 5 through 15. So David says, look, <clears throat> tomorrow's the new moon festival, and I'm supposed to dine with the king, your father. But let me go and hide in the field until evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. Now, if he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he's determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never. Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, well, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went out there together. Then Jonathan said to David, by the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, Will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he was with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Roman numeral number two, the proposition, verses five through 15, a plan is proposed. Uh, David's going to set now up a way to test to see Saul's attitude. Now, verse 5, he says, now David says, hey, tomorrow there's a holiday. It's a holy day. Um, perfect setting to carry out a little experiment. He has an idea. Now, the new moon festival is something that uh, the Jews celebrated. It was like a Sabbath day 
to remember the Lord and to sacrifice unto him. But uh, the new moon was every new lunar month, the full moon, there'd be a celebration to thank God for his ongoing care and mercy. So you can read more about that in Numbers 28. Now, David's assumption is, um, your dad will miss me at the dinner table, and his reaction will reveal his true intentions. Now, there are two possibilities in verse 7. He says, well, his first reaction could be a matter of fact, kind of whatever, very well, no big deal, or too bad, I wanted to get things right with him, whatever. That's one way it could go. And then the other way it could go here in verse 7 is a tirade. If he flies into a rage, we can be sure that he's determined to kill me. Notice verse 8, a little bit of a speed bump in their relationship between David and Jonathan. David's feeling kind of vulnerable. It happens in the best relationships, right? He says, hey, and by the way, if I'm guilty, you know, if you're in on this, if you're going to hand me over to your dad, just could you do it right now? Just kill me. Right now, I'm ready. <laughs> and uh, David Guzik says this about that verse. Maybe David's feeling shaken by the fact that Jonathan didn't warn him about the last attempt to arrest David when he fled to Samuel. David's asking, am I wrong here? Am I missing something? Are you still with me, Jonathan? If you're really in cahoots with your dad, if you're, if you're in on this thing, just go ahead and kill me right now. So from a, a human, worldly point of view, you know, could you blame David for wondering, having a few doubts? Think about it. King Saul is Jonathan's biological father. You know what they say about blood being thicker than water? You know, sometimes blood wins out. David has to factor that in. And how about Jonathan is next in line to the throne. Jonathan will be king. Jonathan's sons will be king. The family name will live on forever as the kings of Israel. There's a lot on the line. And by the way, David's probably thinking, you know what, I didn't really get a heads up last chapter when Saul was on his way, you know, and he sent the soldiers. And Jonathan's the one he just said, Hey, my dad checks in with me about everything. Did he check in with you about that? And so, you know, I like what one writer said. He said, for Jonathan to side with David, he must side against every human natural inclination. He must side against himself. Well, no wonder. Who sides against themselves? Hardly anybody. Hardly anybody. But Jonathan's the real deal. So Jonathan senses David's in a vulnerable place. He encourages him to put his doubts and his fears away. Uh, verses 12 through 15, you see Jonathan's request. You know, if my father does want to kill you, I, I'll tell you, I, I know that'll be the end. You'll become king and may the Lord bless you as he once blessed my father a long time ago at the beginning. Uh, when you're king conquering all your enemies, could you remember me? And my children, because you know what? He knows what happens. Uh, sometimes the new dynasty comes in and wipes out the old one. So he's just saying, could you, I, I remember, I'm thinking of the thief on the cross. 
when he says, hey, I recognize what's happening here. You're the king, and you're not going to be staying on that cross. And when you come into your kingdom, would you just remember me? I think that's a little bit of what's happening here. So now the practical question, once you find out, Jonathan, what's up with your dad, who's going to get word to me? Verses 16 through 34. Big chunk now. So Jonathan makes a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. Now that's just the way that Jesus tells us all to love. Now verse 18. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon festival. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began. And I will wait by the stony zell. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on the side of you. Bring them here, then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you're safe. There's no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter, you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon festival came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he's just unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't that son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today. Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I find favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. I always go for the women. What is that? Serious. I'm sorry, wives. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Hello. Sorry, I threw that in there. Now, send and bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Hmm. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. That was just really the last spear there. 34, Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger, and on that second day of the month, he didn't eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Okay, Roman numeral number three, and I'll I'll tell you how to spell this. Uh Uh-oh. All right, so it's U-H-O-H. Do you always want to know that? 
That's how you spell it, but most of you already knew that, apparently. <laughs> Verses 16 to 34, a few things are going on here. They repeat their oaths of loyalty and the plans laid out to figure out what Saul's thinking. And Saul reacts to the test and Jonathan has his answer. And so we've already talked about um, the dynasty killing the other dynasty. So in verses 16 and 17, uh, he asked David to promise that that will never happen. And you know, a beautiful, beautiful story in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 9 with um, Saul's uh, grandson. So Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is crippled. And David just goes out of his way to find this grandson of Saul, son of Jonathan, and just lavishes mercy upon him. It's a beautiful story. And, and so David keeps the promise. Next book, chapter 9. So verses 20 to 23, the signal. So after the holiday, to, to signal David what happened, Jonathan will go out to, uh, as to target practice in a field. He can't be seen with David, so he'll shoot the arrows close by in verse 21, which means Saul's heart has changed. There's no danger. Come on out. Or he'll shoot the arrows far. And that means you're in trouble. Verse 22, buddy, head for the hills. Now, and now the wait. Now David has to wait. Suffering produces perseverance. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Right? So that this man is learning how to wait on the Lord. And while he's waiting on the Lord, maybe he's writing Psalm 27 that says, We must wait on the Lord. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Psalm 27 and verse 14. This, is, this guy is tremendous. He worships his way through life. He worships his way through trouble. He finds something good in it. He grieves, he gets on with business, he praises God and the Psalms always end on an upbeat, but I know your faithful love and goodness will sustain me. It's just the way he rolls is to worship God through life circumstances. Uh, Saul reacts. It's time to pass the turkey and the holiday fixins. And uh, verse 24, uh, the first day David is noticeably absent, but Saul is noticeably quiet because the Holy Spirit tells you what Saul's thinking. Saul is thinking, well, David is not here. He probably is ceremonially unclean. Now, that just means you can look that up in Leviticus 7. There were some uh, holiness codes. It didn't mean you were sinning. It meant the Lord was teaching the Israelites about holiness and separation unto God. So if you came in contact with a dead body or things related to the fall, you were ceremonially defiled or unclean. And so for one day... You had to be benched from fellowship with other people. So he's seeking if he, you know, perhaps he got into a fight with a Philistine. And, and, and so he has to take a day to kind of get right. But he'll be back tomorrow. So that's what he's thinking because it only took one day out. But verse 27, uh, 
Jonathan's probably thinking, so far, so good. Man, we're at day two, and then they get together, and there's the empty chair, and uh, Saul wants some answers, and he says in a pejorative way, where is the son of Jesse? By the way, that's like using our last name only. Hey, where's Jones? Or whatever. Sorry, Josh. I didn't mean it like that. That's the first name that came to mind. <laughs> and so he says, where is that son of Jesse, and here comes the test. Well, David's celebrating the holiday this time with his family instead of us. His brothers really insisted, so, you know, he asked me permission, and I, Dad, you know what I said? I said, sure, and that's where the tirade in verse 30 comes. Now, when he attacks his own wife or one of his wives or Jonathan's mother, it's lower than you think. Let me explain it to you. He's saying, by siding with David against me, there's no way you could be my son legitimately. So the attack is on his wife who bore him, saying, my wife must have been rebellious and unfaithful because who knows who your real father is, you see? Because you wouldn't be my kid because my kid would care about me and my throne And my kid would want to be crown prince and wouldn't want to throw it away on some usurper who's rising up to steal my coveted throne. So you're not my son. You're illegitimate. You know what? Whatever our sons do to us or do to the Lord, you know what? We don't disown them. Amen. Amen. So Saul justifies his position and tries to persuade Jonathan. He says, "Uh, what about being dethroned? Do you not understand? Can't you see the writing on the wall? This guy's going to end up king. I'm going to be out of a job. You're going to be out of a throne. How about your boys? Would you care about that? That's what he's saying there. He says that. Can't you see what's happening here? None of your sons. It's all over. You know, as long as David lives... The palace is gone. Fame, gone. The dynasty for the family, gone. Your harem, gone. Whoa. Power, gone. Wealth, gone. And here's where Jonathan shines. And what what a lesson for all of us. Jonathan wants what God wants at his own expense. Jonathan loves God's will over his own selfish ambitions and agenda. We all have dreams. We want the dreams to happen, right? But what's more important than my dream is what God wants. And a lot of times God isn't on the same page as we are about what our dreams are. And when that's the case, we submit to God's plan because God's plan is always better. God loves us. God is for you. You think your dream is great, but God says, oh, if you only knew what I was thinking. He gives those dreams to those who love him and delight in him, not delighting in themselves and their own personal agenda. So beautiful scripture in Psalm 75 says, promotion doesn't come from man. God raises up some and puts down others He makes the call. Promotion comes from the Lord. Psalm 75, verses 6 through 7. That's a hard one. 
was a hard one for me. Barb was, my wife, was employed by a church many years ago as the children's ministry director. And she, by God's good graces, took a few kids and a few workers. And after a few years, it was over maybe 150 kids and 75 adult workers under her care. And the senior pastor came to me and said, hey, listen, um, well, let me tell you, the week before, Barb said to me, I don't ever want to be in a position one day longer than the Lord wants me there. And I said, well, why would you say something like that? She said, I just was praying, and I just felt about my job, and I just felt like, Lord, if anything changes, it would be your will, and I'm happy to obey you. I don't want to be in this position as much as I love it. As much as God has blessed the, the, the fruit of my labors here. A week later, the pastor comes to me and says, you know what, I, I'm going to fire Barb. And I said, uh, what are you going to do that for? Well, I'm not going to fire her. I'm just going to put someone else in her place. There's a guy who has uh, been failing at every single ministry I give him. And so instead of firing him completely, I'm going to give him one more chance. And the only place left for him is children's ministry. So I'm just going to ask Barb to step down and put in this guy who just can't do anything right in a children's ministry. The steam was coming out of my ears. The veins that you see sometimes here, they were all at full mast. Okay. I was so upset. So I went home and gave a heads up to Barb. She said, remember what I said to you last week? That was the Lord. She had perfect peace. I was like, are you crazy? What is wrong with you? This is so unfair. That You put a failing guy in there and just somebody who's working in the, You know, can you imagine me? Yeah, I was out of my mind. But as soon as I got to the place where I understood that it's the Lord who puts up and places down and promotion comes from the Lord, then I found peace. And it's been that way in so many areas of my life. We ought to learn this huge lesson. Pontius Pilate, as I've said many times, Pontius Pilate to Jesus, why are you so silent? Don't you know that I have the power over your life? To crucify you or set you free? Jesus to Pilate. Uh, heaven, heaven calls the shots, not you. It may appear like you have some sort of control or like the pastor who came to me and said, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to upset your income. I'm going to upset the, the ministry. I'm going to do this because I, 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 whatever. The Lord says, look to me. I'm in charge. I'm working all things out for good. And submit. And trust. And have peace. And joy. And move forward. And look for where I'm working and opening a door for you. That's what we need to do. 
God and not man, ultimately calling the shots and how sweet our hearts can remain in peace when we see our destiny is with him. Let's just finish up 35 to the end of the chapter now. Now, Jonathan's the one dodging spears, and so he's convinced that David's in trouble, and now he's got some bad news to deliver. Verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, Is it the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, Hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing of all this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back to the town. So number four, and finally, the root of bitterness. So Saul's bitter jealousy has done what Hebrews twelve fifteen warns, a root of bitterness grows up and causes trouble to many and defiles many as well. The tragedy for Israel is here, a tragedy for Jonathan's uh, Jonathan's father, a tragedy for their friendship between these two men. So these guys are brokenhearted, you know, their lives are turned upside down because of one man's jealous, bitter obsession. So verses 36 and 7, uh, the arrows are shot farther rather than shorter, signaling David's in trouble. So, you know, it took courage for Jonathan to, uh, to go back to associate even near David you know, standing up for the truth usually has a high price involved. Verse 41, tears are shed. They're not going to see each other. They fought together side by side, loyal, devoted bond between them. They love the Lord. They love one another. Uh, David can't stay, and Jonathan can't go. And they probably envisioned working together. There's a line coming up in Second uh, Samuel that... Uh, uh, clearly shows that they intended to be David King and Jonathan in uh, first command there. So that's over. So they both cry, and, and, and you know, it says David wept more. Why? F.B. Meyer, famous commentator, put it this way. Behind him, the sunny morning, David. Before David, the dark gray clouds. Behind David, the enjoyment of friendship, wife, home, royal favor, popularity. Uh, before him now, the life of an outcast. David wept more because David lost more. What a poignant verse for me, the last verse where it just said, just really clobbered me. Then David left. And I imagine David just kind of traipsing out by himself, now away from the palace, 
that's kind of rightfully his, away from his wife, away from his own bed, away from the royal dream that was given him just by himself. And I was just thinking, you know, along with the commentators, you know, was, is it, could that really be God's will? Well, I started thinking it's a road that many Bible heroes have traveled, the road of having to walk alone with the Lord, a road that nobody else can come along with you. They try, but they can't. You know, when I got 10 years ago, got diagnosed with cancer, there were a lot of fine people, loving people who came around and help, were helpful. But there's a road that when the doctor looks at you and says, we don't stop this, you're going to be dead in one year. There's a road that you are on with Jesus, your Lord, and nobody else can be there. There are roads like that. It's called the dark night of the soul. And I just see him and David left. He's going out. He's going to be leaving for 10 years, homeless, 10 years on the run from this madman. But he's on a road and it is in God's will, like Lot and Noah and Moses and Job and Joseph and Jeremiah and Paul and our Lord Jesus Christ himself. One pastor wrote, take heart, my friend, when it's you and the Lord against the world. It's a time of great honor and privilege to walk along alone with Jesus and be transformed by his love. Secondly, it's a road of spiritual growth. We've already talked about this, that character, faith, intimacy with God. David's going to learn how to depend on God and God alone. And uh, I, I love what one writer said Some times there's only one place to learn certain lessons and it's in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. Paul the Apostle has a prayer that many Christians don't pray. He says in Philippians chapter 3, oh, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That means I, I want to walk with the Lord and how the Lord's suffered i want to understand that and i i want to walk with him in it and learn from him and his lowliness and patience and his love that's that's an awesome place to be and paul did have to walk down that lonely road and then finally it was a good road for the sake of others rather than cause a civil war like many people would have so many men today that we all know would have said, excuse me, I'm running? No, you need to run. Who got anointed? Who got fired? I'm the anointed one. Who killed the giant? I killed the giant. Who does God want to be king? Me. Who did he fire? You. Get off the throne. All he has to do is go to Abner, the first lieutenant. Abner, listen, talk to Samuel. Samuel, come from the retreat center. Come on, Samuel, tell everybody what you know. Who did you anoint? Me, right? Who's going to be king? Me. Whose throne is it? Me. He's, a, he's the usurper. He's trying to kill me. Get rid of him. David will not cause a civil war. He will not be divisive. He will come under the crazy king respecting his position not the person, and looking past him to God 
and saying, God, you want him dethroned, you dethrone him. I'm not going to manipulate my way. I'm not going to go in and cause the kingdom to be split in two, even if I think I'm right. And he would be technically right. And he'd be spiritually wrong. And David's not going to do that. David says, I'm not going to lift my finger against the Lord's anointed. That's an amazing thing. But in love, he's thinking about others. He's not going to divide anybody's heart. He's not going to go out and campaign for righteousness. Vote for me because he's out and I'm in. And I'm the good one. He's the bad one. He walks away with great courage, dignity, holiness, and the blessing of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these incredible insights into character, into uh, spiritual strategy, which is so upside down from the way we all think in this world. So help us, Lord, to get a hold of these spiritual truths that are life-changing. In Christ's name, amen.